As we look at John's Gospel, one of the things we get to see is how Jesus interacts with all sorts of different people. Recently, we've seen him in conversation with Nicodemus, a man who was highly educated, highly religious, highly respected, and highly powerful. And we saw Jesus was at ease in dealing with Nicodemus. He was unfazed by the man's high standing. Jesus was able to speak to him as a person who, for all of his high standing, needed to be born again. And this morning, we're going to see Jesus interact with someone who probably couldn't be more different from Nicodemus. But again, we're going to see Jesus at ease in dealing with this person. And we're going to see him speak to this person's greatest, deepest need. So turn with me to John chapter 4. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 1066. And in the larger print Bibles, 1652. John chapter 4, and we're going to read from verse 1 down to verse 26. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan Woman, how can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir... Give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and I have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. You have just said, what you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. 
Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. This is God's word. And it shows us that Jesus ignores the divisions that humans create. And this passage shows us Jesus provides what no human alliance can provide. First, in verses 1 to 10, Jesus ignores the divisions that humans create. Last week at the end of chapter 3, we heard how Jesus and his disciples were essentially uh, replicating the ministry of John the Baptist and his disciples. Except that Jesus and his disciples were apparently drawing crowds away from John. John himself had no problem with that. He welcomed Jesus' rise. In fact, John said, it makes my joy complete to see Jesus becoming greater. That's what's supposed to happen. But some of John's disciples were not so joyful about the situation. They were upset by Jesus' growing popularity. They were upset by the way it was making their own popularity diminish. And that friction, that irritation, is probably what's behind the information here in verses 1 to 3. We're told that as the Pharisees, that's the religious leaders, as they begin to pay attention to the situation, Jesus decides to head back north back to Galilee, where he'd miraculously turned water into wine in chapter 2. It seems Jesus doesn't want the Pharisees to try and exploit the tension between him and John's disciples. He knows the Pharisees would be only too happy to try and stir up the tension even more and use it to derail the good work that's being done. So Jesus heads north, and verse 4 says that means he had to go through Samaria. If we look at a map for just a moment, there's Judea. That's the area where John and Jesus have been working. There's Galilee, where Jesus is heading now. And there's Samaria, the area Jesus had to go through to get to Galilee. So when we hear that Jesus had to pass through Samaria, does that mean geographically he had to? Well, in one sense, you can see on the map, yes, unless he was going to go the long way round. But I suspect we're to understand something else here as well. Jesus had to go through Samaria because there was someone he had to meet there. 
Someone who could not be more unlike Nicodemus. And as we'll see next week, this is someone Jesus' disciples are surprised to see Jesus talking to. That's probably putting it mildly in terms of the disciples' reaction. In any case, it's worth noticing in passing a little detail in verse 6. Verse 6 says, Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. Here's the reality we heard about in the introduction to John's gospel. The reality that the Word became flesh. The eternal Son of God didn't just become like a man. He didn't just pretend to be a man. He truly became a man. The eternal one through whom all things were made sits down by the well because he's tired from the journey. What could be more human? Here is proof for what the book of Hebrews says about Jesus. He is able to feel sympathy for our weaknesses. Why? Because in his great love, he chose to come and share in our weaknesses. When you come to Jesus in your weakness, you are coming to the one who understands. Not just in theory, he understands from personal experience. He remembers that you are dust. And he knows exactly what it's like to be dust. And because of that solidarity Jesus has with us human beings, because of that sympathy he has for us, he refuses to give any credence to the divisions human beings create. He refuses to recognize the barriers humans put up between one another. We're all dust. And Jesus refuses to treat some dust as more important and more worthy and other dust as less important and less worthy. Look how that plays out here by this well in Samaria. The end of verse 6 says it's about noon. So it is the hottest part of the day. And as Jesus sits there, we're told in verse 7, a Samaritan woman came to draw water. This is the worst time of day to come and draw water. Drawing water is hard, heavy work. This well is still there today. It's over 100 feet deep today. 2,000 years ago, it was probably even deeper. So hauling up a bucket of water from the bottom would have been tough enough work. Ideally, it's work you would share with others. But this woman has come to do it in the sweltering heat, and apparently she has come alone. Why might that be? Well, let's hold on to that question for a bit, and notice first of all how she reacts when Jesus asks her for a drink in verse 9. Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? This woman sees two barriers between her and Jesus. She's a Samaritan and she's a woman. 
In this culture, it was a big social taboo for a man to approach a woman like this. It just wasn't done. But Jesus seems oblivious to that. Of course, he would have known it just wasn't done, but he ignores that social convention, and the woman is shocked. But the rest of the passage suggests what shocks her more is the other social barrier Jesus totally ignores, the fact that she's a Samaritan. John underlines that by telling us in verse 9, Jews do not associate with Samaritans. It is just not done. Why? Well, it was a division that had deep roots. About 500 years before this, the Israelites who lived in the area of Samaria had been carted away into exile by the Assyrians. At least a good number of them had been taken into exile. And in order to repopulate Samaria, the Assyrians transferred in a hodgepodge of people from Babylon and various other places. So from that point on, the population of Samaria was racially and culturally mixed. And it was religiously mixed as well. The Samaritans accepted the first five books of the Old Testament, but only the first five books. And they also had a collection of pagan gods from the various places their ancestors came from. They even built their own temple on Mount Gerizim to rival the temple in Jerusalem. And not surprisingly, the Jews did not feel positive about this. Over the years, there were some major political incidents between the Jews and the Samaritans. And on a day-to-day basis, the Jews regarded the Samaritans as impure. They were dirty, which meant that their belongings were dirty too. So, for example, no Jew would eat from a Samaritan's plate or drink from a Samaritan's cup. So maybe when we realize that, we can begin to grasp a little bit of this lady's surprise when Jesus ignores not only the wider cultural taboo of approaching a woman, but also the very specific taboo of a Jew approaching a Samaritan. And asking for a drink from her unclean cup or her pitcher or jug or whatever it was she had brought to collect the water in. And there's one more layer to this. A moment ago we noticed how unusual it was for a woman to come in the hottest part of the day to do the hard work of drawing water. And how unusual it was for her to come alone. This work was normally a team effort. The ladies would help each other haul up the bucket and to pour the water into their pitchers. The fact that this lady comes when nobody else is there indicates she is an outcast even among her own people. Not only do the Jews see her as unclean, apparently her own people do as well. And later we'll find out why. Now, of course, the lady has no reason to think Jesus knows that particular detail about her. But we know 
Jesus knows it. And later he will reveal to the lady that he knows it. Which means there's yet another social barrier Jesus is breaking. She's a woman, she's a Samaritan, and she's an outcast even to her own people. But Jesus pays no mind to any of that. He approaches her like it's the most natural thing in the world, and he asks her for a drink. He ignores the divisions humans have created. And this is not by accident. Remember the comment back in verse 4 that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Not just because it was the shortest route. And not just so he could reach out to this one Samaritan lady. This happened to show who Jesus is. We can apply his attitude here to all the divisions we create among ourselves as human beings. The division between those on the political left and the political right. The divisions between those of one cultural background and another. The divisions between one economic class and another. Those kind of divisions can be so important to us Even if we don't think ourselves as being prejudiced, I mean, does anyone really think they're prejudiced? Don't we all think we're balanced people? But we can all allow those kind of divisions to be so significant for us and the way we relate or don't relate to other people. Even if we'd never say we have no ill will towards people on the other side of those divisions, even if we'd never say we had ill will, we can still let those divisions cause us to keep our distance. And we maybe even think that Jesus would keep his distance too. But he doesn't. He didn't hear with a Samaritan woman by the well And he is not put off by the things that put us off other people today. And if you're someone who feels like others keep you at a distance, please look at this passage and see Jesus is different. The things that make you unacceptable to others, Jesus is all too happy to reach across those barriers to you. Now, if all that Jesus did here was reach across the human barriers between this woman and himself, that would be lovely. It would be commendable. But actually, Jesus does a whole lot more. He reaches across these barriers to offer this lady something supremely valuable and eternally precious. In verse 10, he says to her, If you knew the gift of God... And who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. In this context, the obvious meaning of living water is fresh running water from a spring. But Jesus is speaking about something better than that. Just like he did with Nicodemus when he spoke about being born again, Here, the living water Jesus has in mind is something supernatural. 
in this verse, the gift of God may be another name for this living water. It might mean that. But the Jews refer to the first five books of the Bible as the gift of God. So Jesus may be saying to this lady, if you knew the scripture, if you knew even the five books of the Bible that you accept, you would know about this living water. But either way, whatever Jesus means exactly by the gift of God, the significant point in verse 10 is that Jesus says to the lady, I'm the one who can give you living water. But again, just like Nicodemus, when Jesus spoke about being born again, the lady only grasps the normal meaning of living water. In verse 11, she says, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? The woman assumes Jesus is either offering to draw water from this well for her, or that he knows of some other fresh spring nearby that no one else is aware of, a spring that you don't need a bucket for. And actually, the woman seems to have her doubts about Jesus knowing of another well. When she says, are you greater than our father Jacob, the way she words the question implies Certainly, you're not greater than our father Jacob. You seem like a decent person, but you ain't in the same league as the great Jacob, surely. And as for the idea that you have access to a better well than this one, I don't buy that either. The woman is unconvinced. And so, just like he did with Nicodemus, Jesus patiently explains things a little bit more. In verse 13, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus says, I'm not offering natural water as good as that is, and as tired and thirsty as I am, I can assure you I appreciate natural water, but what I'm offering is supernatural water. I'm offering water that brings not just temporary satisfaction, but eternal satisfaction and refreshment. Now, when we listen to Jesus speaking with Nicodemus, we saw that being born again was actually something foretold and expected in the Old Testament. And living water is the same. The most well-known psalm, which we read earlier, Psalm 23 says, The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. Psalm 36 says about the Lord's people, you give them drink from your river of delights, for with you is the fountain of life. In Jeremiah chapter 2, the Lord describes himself as the spring of living water. And we could look at other examples, but the point is Jesus is not bringing a new idea. What is new in the picture is Jesus himself. 
Once again, we're seeing Jesus is the one who delivers the things promised in the Old Testament. He fulfills the hopes of the Old Testament. He's the one who gives this living water that refreshes our soul. That satisfies our thirst for spiritual reality. Eternal life. And in the verses that follow, Jesus shows not only that he ignores human divisions, he also provides what no human alliance can. We've seen how human divisions separate us, but why do those divisions come about in the first place? Don't they come about because we find a certain amount of comfort and satisfaction in being with people like us? That's why human divisions can run so deep. We cling to them because they give us a sense of being united with our kind of people. And that's not all bad. Isn't this the reason people pack into a stadium to support their football team? It's not all about watching classy skills. In fact, depending on your team, you might never see any classy skills. People unite behind their team because we get some satisfaction from being allied together with others, don't we? And here in our passage, this woman by the well has her alliances too. But Jesus is going to show her he provides what no human alliance can. We know she's a Samaritan. We'll hear more about that alliance in a moment. But first, in our passage, Jesus puts his finger on a particular kind of alliance this lady has been looking to for her satisfaction. And he gently points out to her she has not found lasting satisfaction that way. In verse 16, he says to her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands. And the man you have now is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Not too many people work their way through five husbands. It could be some of them died At least some of them probably divorced her. In this culture, it's less likely she would have divorced them. We're not given the details, actually, of her five marriages. But what is clear is that those human alliances have not provided her with lasting satisfaction. She kept going back to the marriage well, but it has failed her again and again. It's failed her to the point where she's now trying another kind of relationship outside of marriage. That explains why she came to the well alone at midday. Her non-married alliance with her latest man has caused the people of the town to break their alliance with her. In our culture today, her behavior wouldn't cause a ripple. But here, it makes her an outcast in her time. 
So in forming one alliance, this lady has lost another one. She's gained a new man for the time being, but she's lost her friends. Friendships, relationships can be like that. They can be brittle. They can be unreliable. They can be easily formed sometimes, but they're easily broken too. If not broken by a falling out, then broken by illness and death. Close human relationships can be great, but even at their best, they cannot provide the eternal living water Jesus provides. And nor can the big group alliances that we look to for our identity. In this case, it's obvious the lady puts a lot of hope in her identity as a Samaritan. When she first met Jesus, it was the first thing she referred to. And now she brings it up again to him in more detail. Look at verse 19. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Now we might wonder if this is just an attempt to divert Jesus from talking about her love life. But I don't think that's the case. I think actually this is getting to the heart of the issue for this lady. And the way Jesus engaged with what she says, the way he engages with it, shows that he thinks it as the heart of the issue too. This woman has seen Jesus as not just an ordinary traveler. He has shown precise insight into the private details of her life. So she calls him a prophet. And she raises then what she sees as the big issue. He's offering her something special. Living water. But he's a Jew and she's a Samaritan. She is allied to her people not his. How can his gift be for her? That's really what she's asking. That's the point of what she says about this mountain. Where she and Jesus are by the well, they can see Mount Gerizim, where the Samaritans had built their temple. But Jesus belongs to the Jews, whose temple is in Jerusalem. So how could his gift of living water be for her? How is Jesus going to respond to that? He responds by saying, what matters is not whether you're a Jew or a Samaritan. Those human alliances are irrelevant now. What matters is whether you come to me for this living water I'm offering. Look at verse 21. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. In other words, it's not that great being a Samaritan because you reject most of the Old Testament. In that sense, Jesus is saying we Jews are better off because we have the whole Old Testament. We worship what we do know. 
we know more of God's revelation in Scripture. And that revelation tells us God's salvation comes to the world through us. Salvation is from the Jews. Yet, verse 23, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship Him in the Spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When He comes, He will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am He. Jesus says, this debate about Jerusalem versus Mount Gerizim, it used to be significant. It used to matter whether you were a Jew or a Samaritan. But now I've arrived. Some people like to argue that Jesus was just a chilled out guy who never claimed anything big or special for himself. But Jesus' actual words show that he made the highest possible claims about himself. He claimed to be God's promised Messiah. And here he says, now that I have arrived, Jew versus Samaritan really isn't relevant. Those alliances really don't matter anymore. It's no longer about which mountain you worship on. It's no longer about which city your temple is in. It's about worshiping the Father in the Spirit and in truth. What does that mean? Well, we already know from chapter 2, Jesus himself is the true place of worship. In chapter 2, he walked into the temple in Jerusalem and he made it very clear from now on, worship must be focused on him, not on a building. It's not that the temple in Jerusalem was a bad thing. It was set up by God. But it was only for a time. Because, as verse 24 says, God is spirit. And so worship of God can't ultimately be about a building made of bricks. True worship is spiritual. It's supernatural. In chapter 3, Jesus said to Nicodemus, In order to worship God, we must first be born of water and the spirit. Here he says to the Samaritan woman, true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. Those are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. So how do you become one of those spiritual worshipers? How do you enjoy a supernatural connection to God? Rather than just being a person who goes to some sacred building or special place. How do you do that? Become a spiritual worshiper? You come to Jesus for living water. True worshipers are not those born Jews or born Samaritans or born Gentiles or born British. It's not about whether you're one of the posh ones or one of the smart ones or one of the cool ones or the purposefully uncool ones. 
It's not about belonging to any of those human alliances. True worship is only possible when we come to Jesus as spiritually thirsty people. We come and receive his living water that becomes a spring of water in us, welling up to eternal life. Jesus himself is the spring of living water, spoken about in the Old Testament. He's the one who leads us beside quiet waters. He's the one who refreshes our soul. And he offers this to all of us. Jesus is not put off by the things that cause other people to reject us or to look down on us. He sought out this woman at the well not only to show her that truth, he did it to show us too. Whatever it is that causes others to push you away, And to keep their distance from you, Jesus looks past those things. He does know everything about you, including the nasty stuff about you. He knows it all, but he doesn't shrink back from you. He sees you as a person worth paying attention to. He sees you as a man or woman in need of his living water. And he offers it to you. So come to him. And those of us who have come to him, let's thank him for this living water he gives us. Let's thank him for the wonderful truth that his living water is a never-failing stream. It always flows to refresh us. And it always will. So let's come to him, whether for the first time or for the thousandth time. Let's come and praise him together as we sing, Come to Jesus, rest in him. Jesus and
you guilty, caught in shame for all your sin. He pursues you to forgive you, rest in Him. He has paid for every failure, mercy flows in endless streams, come and follow. Freedom calls you, rest in Him. How sure His compassion for us. Oh, how deep is His love. So come, come to Jesus and rest in This broken world to heal. He is coming, soon returning, rest in Him. We will see Him, we will know Him. Oh, our hearts of grace revealed from His kindness, every promise and fulfilled. Trust in Jesus, he will keep us to the end. How sure is compassion for us, oh how deep is his love. So come, come to Jesus and rest, how sure is compassion for us. Oh, how deep is his love, so come, come to Jesus and rest in him. Come to Jesus and rest in The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.